If you came into my office for counseling, and I'm not recommending that you do that, not very good, first thing I would probably do is offer you a bottle of water. And then I would joke that if you wanted something stronger, you have to go up to Pastor Phillip's office. I'm not sure what you're thinking, but it's just because he has a coffee maker up there. As we sat down to, to talk, I would be listening for two things, two gifts from the Lord that are available to every follower of Jesus, no matter what our circumstances are. These two gifts, I believe, are essential in helping us to live with the pain of a broken and fallen world and to deal with the temptation that comes with it. And without these two gifts, we are far more vulnerable than we need to be. And they are freedom and joy. Usually when a couple wants to meet with me for counseling, it's because they are not experiencing freedom and joy in their marriage. And I can usually tell that by observing a few things. When they walk into my office, I notice how far apart they sit from each other. Is there room for me between them? If so, that's not a good sign. How often, if ever, do they look at each other? What are their facial expressions when their spouse is talking? Do they ever touch? Do they hold hands? Do they occasionally put a, a comforting hand on the other's shoulder? Do they even talk to each other? Or do they talk to me and act like their spouse isn't even in the room? Now, they're in my office because they want help, and that's great. That's an important big step in the right direction. But these observations help me to see where they are with respect to freedom and joy. Now, when I talk about joy, I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Joy is not the same thing as happiness, but it's related. Joy is more a state of being. It's a decision that we make. But I think that joy has its foundation as the promise of future happiness. I'm not happy now. There's a, a tragedy or sad situation going on in my life. But joy reminds me that I will be happy in the future. It gives me the right perspective on what I'm going through. It gives me an eternal perspective. And it helps me to see that this horrible event will be used by God for his glory and for my eternal good. It also helps me to see that the pain of this tragedy is only for a season. It will not last forever. And joy also helps me to see that no matter how great the suffering is, it isn't even worth comparing to the glory that awaits me as a child of God, either when Jesus returns or when I go to him. I mean, it's not even worth comparing, the Bible says. Think about that. The Bible tells us that we are to be joyful in all things, right? That means that it's possible, because what God commands, he also enables. That is a powerful, powerful gift, and it is available to every follower of Jesus 24-7. Now, what is freedom for the Christian? Well, it's not doing what we feel like all the time, because like sinners, what we often feel like doing is, well, sinful. Too often, what we feel like doing is the opposite of what we actually should be doing, right? And the Bible calls that slavery, not freedom. Listen to 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, right? Isn't that what the world promises? You can do whatever you want. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. But 
Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And also in John 8.36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that is the gospel. When Jesus sets us free, we are free from the slavery of sin. His death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, past, present, and future, when we place our faith and our trust in him, sets us free. So the freedom that I'm talking about, the freedom of the Bible, is the desire and the ability to do whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do, no matter how difficult it is. And that is glorious freedom. All of us, we do things, we say things, we think things, we eat or drink things that we later come to regret, but we were too weak when the temptation came. That is not freedom, and that, we know, does not bring us joy. But freedom and joy are possible when we embrace the truths of a passage like Psalm 19. And in this psalm, I see three actions or responses that are essential to living in freedom and joy, and they are these. First, we are to be amazed by God's glory. Second, to be captivated by God's laws. And third, to be ruthless with sin. Those are responses, reactions that will bring freedom and joy in our lives. Now, the author of this psalm, Psalm 19, is King David, Israel's greatest king, and according to the Lord, a man after God's own heart. David loved the Lord, but he was a sinner, sometimes a great sinner. And we don't know at what point in David's life he wrote this psalm, but as I look at the end of the psalm, I tend to think that it was probably later on in his life after he had learned some very hard lessons. But regardless of when it was, what you see throughout this psalm is David's great love for the Lord. Well, let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6. You can find it on page 456 in the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. Verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You can hear David's amazement over God's glory displayed in creation, can't you? And he is inviting us to be amazed by it as well. Psalm 19 tells us that God's glory is so great that his creation never ceases to proclaim it. Every day, every night, all over the world, to everyone without fail. You know, in our family, when we have uh, birthdays, we've done this ever since the kids were little, on, on the birthday, we go around the table at dinner, and each person says something they appreciate about the birthday boy or the birthday girl. We actually just did this last week because my birthday was last week. Uh, you'll find information in the bulletin about where I registered for that. <laughs> and I heard some really nice things. Many of them were even true. But when the kids were little, the compliments got a little thin at times, right? And there was a lot of repetition. What one of the older kids said, the younger kid would say. We heard a lot of, you're nice and you're funny. 
That was the extent of it many times. But not so with the Lord. God's glory is so immense and endless that it is readily available to everyone, everywhere, all the time, forever. It reminds me of the angels in Isaiah 6, around the throne of God, who never cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And listen to what the Lord himself, the Lord says about himself in Isaiah 40. He says, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I mean, we can't really even comprehend the number of stars in the universe. And God says that because of his power, not a single one is missing. And he's named them all, and he remembers their names. I mean, as a church, when we send 32 kids to summer camp, we're happy to get 30 back. I mean, that, that's a win for us. I love what one uh, author says about how the heavens de declare the glory of God and what they say about him. It says this, that we learn about God's creation. We learn about God's character through his creation this way. We see God's intellectual genius, his endless creativity, his eternal power, his exquisite, beautiful, and purposeful craftsmanship, and his divine nature. I want to read that one more time because there's so much here. God's creation tells us this about him. His intellectual genius, his endless creativity, his eternal power, his exquisite, beautiful, and purposeful craftsmanship, and his divine nature. Amen? Amen. David gives us uh, the sun as one example, saying that it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Our sun is 93 million miles away from Earth. I mean, try to wrap your mind around that distance. But even though it's so far away, if you look directly at it for too long, you will do permanent damage to your eyes. And if you don't wear some kind of protection, the sun can burn your skin from 93 million miles away. If you have my skin, it could be three times as far, you'd still get burned. But how amazing is that? And it's exactly the right distance. A little further away, we freeze to death. A little closer, we burn to death. God put it exactly where it belongs. But you know, for all of the sun's power, its beauty and its grandeur never get old, right? I don't know if you're tired of seeing the sun. We'll see it again in March. I'm excited. <laughs> but on a clear day, the sunrise is so beautiful that some people actually get out of bed before the angels are awake just to see it. It's personally why I prefer sunsets. I know that the angels are there watching with me. David likens the son to a newly married man and a strong man. Interesting. From sunrise to sunset, it runs its course with joy and strength for all to see and marvel at it. I love that. But as amazing as the sun is, it pales in comparison to its creator. You know, some people worship the sun and the stars, and other people 
sinfully look to them for guidance for their lives, but Christians, followers of Jesus, we are moved to worship and adoration when we behold all of God's creation, and that brings us great joy. And you think about it. He made all this for us. He made it for us to enjoy. He didn't need it. It's for us. The God who created the universe, this God of immeasurable genius, of eternal creativity, of unimaginable power, this God of exquisite beauty and blinding glory knows your name. He knows your name. He handmade you in your mother's womb for his glory. And he offers you himself. He offers you himself. And if that does not bring you joy, then I just can simply tell you to beg God to open your eyes so that you won't miss it. The second essential response for us to experience freedom and joy is for us to be captivated by God's laws. And this comes in verses 7 through 11. Not just hear God's laws, appreciate God's laws. I think we need to be captivated by God's laws, and we should be captivated by them. Beginning verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. You know, David here is obviously doing so much more than saying, listen, the law of the Lord is good, and you're better off following it than not following it. You can hear the delight in his voice over the beauty and the goodness and the rightness of God's laws, can't you? He is captivated by them. And it's because he knows that God's laws, they're beautiful and they're good and they're right, and they are more profitable and desirable than the best that this world has to offer. That was the conclusion that he reached. And when we don't reach that conclusion, we run into all kinds of problems. Do, do you see God's law this way? If you don't, you are missing out. You are far more vulnerable to the lies of temptation than you should be. Because when we look at God's laws, as sinful human beings, we are tempted to evaluate God's laws, aren't we? We're tempted to, to sit in judgment of them. This one makes sense, that one doesn't. But the reality is, we are not sitting in judgment of God's laws. We are the ones being judged. David wrote this psalm about 3,000 years ago when the Old Testament was still being written, parts of it by him, obviously. So when he's referring to the, the, the laws of, of the Lord, he's clearly speaking about the scriptures that had already been written. But the all-encompassing language that he uses reminds us that it's really every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Everything that comes out of the mouth of our, our glorious God is to be listened to, is to be treasured, to, tr to be trusted, and to be obeyed. You know, according to the internet, which has never let me down, there are about 613 different laws or commands in the Old Testament. Thankfully, Jesus summarized those to two. Love the Lord your God with all you are and all you have, and love others the way you love yourself. 
And the Ten Commandments can be divided up that way as well. The first four tell us how to love God, how to worship God. The other six tell us how to love others. However, compared to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Ten Commandments seem relatively easy to obey. The Sixth Commandment is, you shall not murder. But Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Haven't killed anyone? Great. Check that box. Called someone a fool? Uncheck that box. I have three brothers. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, that verse alone would send me to hell. It's partly their fault, though. So, Jesus also raised the bar on the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I think if we're honest, we'd say that does not sound like a law that I can delight in. That sounds like a law that is impossible to obey. But it is a law to delight in because it was given to us by that same glorious God who loves us and only wants the best for us. He wants to give us freedom and not slavery and joy rather than shame. But we have to trust him. In verses 7 through 11, David identifies six kinds of instruction, commands, laws that God gives. He describes an aspect of their holy character, and then he helps us to understand what they do in the lives of those who obey them. There is so much wisdom packed in these verses. I think it's incredible. These six types of instruction are very similar, but each has its own nuance. We begin with verse 7. He says, the law, literally Torah, it's the most general term here. It is not the same as our legal term. We think of law, uh, just a, bu a bunch of codes and so forth. But it may be best understood, according to one scholar, as the whole of Scripture or the Word of God. Testimony is an aspect of truth that God has personally attested to, kind of like a witness in court. Precepts, together with commandment, those two indicate the precision and the authority of God's laws. They are precise, and he has the authority to give them. Fear is an interesting one. Uh, many see fear as a synonym for God's law, substituting the effect for the cause. We should have a fear of the Lord in reading uh, God's word. Or it could be the godly response to God's law that we see in the final verses of this psalm. And then lastly, rules. Rules are actually those, uh, they, they refer to God's judgments or God's verdict on our thoughts and actions. What's interesting about these various types uh, when you take them all together is, again, it says everything that comes out of the mouth of our holy and glorious God needs to be obeyed and heeded. All of Scripture contains God's instruction to us in various forms and in various circumstances. But none are suggestions. None are optional for us. These are the very words of God. We need to treat them that way. We need to seek them. But it's remarkable how many Christians, when surveyed, don't even believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God. They believe that it contains errors, and that allows us to sit in judgment of it, because if it doesn't make any sense to us, well then, we don't have to obey it, right? But God has preserved His Word, and His commands are not optional for us. But we can ask the question, why should I obey these laws? I mean, the Bible has instruction about everything we do right? What I 
do what I say, even what I think. That's a lot. And it's not easy sometimes. Sometimes the Lord's instruction is difficult to obey. Sometimes it's difficult to understand. Sometimes it's even difficult to see how it's good from our own sinful perspective. So why should we obey these laws? Well, the Apostle John gave us two reasons in one verse. In 1 John 5, 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So the first is that out of our love for God and recognition of all that he has done for us, the fact that our sin sent his son to die on the cross, our love for him compels us to obey him. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. But secondly, he says, and this is so interesting, his commandments are not burdensome. And the truth is they're only burdensome when we desire sin more than our Savior. When we desire him, obedience is not easy all the time, but it is not a burden. But David gives us more reasons why we should obey and cherish God's laws when he shows us the character of these laws and again, what happens to those who obey them. Verse 7, because it is perfect, the law of the Lord revives the soul. There's an interesting change here in the name of God. Before it was Elohim, a generic name for God. Now it's Yahweh, it's the covenant name of God, the personal name who gives these, these laws to us, these commands, this instruction. And they are perfect. By saying God's law is perfect, it means it's complete. It's sufficient for every situation that we may ever find ourselves in. And as a result, it revives the soul. It gives us exactly what we need when we need it. It is food to the starving, and it is drink to the thirsty. It also says, because it is sure, the testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. Being sure means it's trustworthy, it's accurate, it's reliable, it's not twisted, it's not distorted like some human laws are. If we follow what the Lord says, we find truth. And being eager to know the truth of God makes us wise. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I am tired of acting foolishly. My family, even more tired of me acting foolishly. I'm so tired of doing things, saying things, and going, why in the world did I think that was a good idea? I do it by God's grace less than I used to, but still far too often. I am tired of feeling the regret over stupid, foolish behavior. And if you are as well, and you should be, seek and follow God's laws. Seek and follow God's laws. Rejection of God's truth is wise in the eyes of the world, but it is the very definition of foolishness because it's, it makes you think that you are wiser than God. It goes on to say that because they are right, the precepts of the Lord rejoice the heart. I love this one. Being right here is not as opposed to wrong, but straight as opposed to crooked. It has more to do with righteousness, right living. I think there's an example of this. I, I, I find this to be an example. If you look up uh, videos online where it's like dad saves the day, you see these videos of dads basically rescuing their kids. Kid's gonna fall off the couch, dad just reaches back with one hand, prevents the kid from falling. There's one where these kids are uh, going down this hill and the dad runs and, and passes them and rescues his little girl from getting hit. I've seen ones where a dad is holding his baby at a baseball game and catches the foul ball. Impressive stuff. 
And it, it, it makes you feel joy when you see that. You kind, of, you kind of rejoice because of that. Because what you see is that this father is putting the safety of his child ahead of himself. Even at a risk to himself. And you feel joy because of that. I don't know, dads are awesome. I think dads are awesome. Because it is pure, the commandment of the Lord enlightens the eyes. Some translations use the word radiant instead of pure. The idea is similar, but it's probably more obvious when you think of something radiant that it gives light. And it enlightens the eyes. The commands of the Lord give light to the darkness around us and it prevents us from becoming lost or stumbling and becoming hurt. Psalm 119, 105 says this, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Next, because it is clean, the fear of the Lord endures forever. If fear of the Lord is a substitute for the law of God, because, again, that's what it's designed to elicit from us, then being clean or pure means that God's word will never decay or change. The word of the Lord stands forever. Corrupt things decay, but God's word is pure and can always be trusted, unlike many human laws, which are subject to the whims of politicians. There are laws that you and I hear about and we think to ourselves, that is a dirty law. It is not pure, it is not clean. But the word of the Lord, all of his commandments are pure. They are clean and they endure forever. And then lastly it says, because it is true and righteous, the rules of the Lord warn and reward. And this one doesn't follow the exact same uh, parallelism. There's actually a little break in here while the psalmist gives uh, praise to the value of God's laws. But he comes back to the Lord's rules are true and all of them are righteous. They are right and holy. And following them benefits us in these two ways. First, we are warned against the destructive consequences of sin. Parents have tried, Christian parents at least, probably I'm sure all parents to some degree, right? We've tried to warn our kids so that they don't make the same mistakes that we do. And so many of them either say or think, I need to figure this out by myself, right? And they experience the same heartache that, that mom and dad did. But the Lord is saying, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to warn you so you don't have to experience these negative consequences of sin. Warnings that we see every day that are actually very helpful to us. Things like bridge out, deer crossing, quicksand ahead, don't eat after October 2nd, 2015. <laughs> Tasted fine to me. Secondly, we are rewarded with the fruit of righteousness by obeying them. You know, there, there's a fruit of unrighteousness, there's a fruit of righteousness, right? There's a reward coming ultimately for how we live in, in heaven as children of God. But there's also the fruit of living righteously. You're avoiding the negative consequences of sin. You're receiving the benefits of that kind of right living. Living a holy life is living a life of freedom and joy, which are great blessings. You know, years ago, I heard a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and it was called The Ten Words of Grace. And I thought, what a perfect description. These are God's gracious and kind warnings to us. So that we would be warned against the lives of the world and the devil so that we might experience the abundant life, the joyful life that Jesus came to bring. David goes on to say, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. 
Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I mean, he is speaking our language at this point, is he not? Some of you aren't sweet eaters, but you'd really like a lot of gold. Some of you like gold, sweets aren't so important. But together, very appealing stuff. But here's the thing, if you and I see God's law simply as a list of thou shalt nots that limit our fun and our happiness, David's description will make no sense to us. How can rules or commandments be more desirable, not the, just than gold, which should be enough, but than a lot of fine gold? And how can these guidelines that restrict our behavior be more desirable, be more delicious than what I would say would be bakery-fresh cherry danishes? I'm bringing that into the new, the new era here. I'm not a big honeycomb eater. How is that possible? How is it possible that he could make those claims and it not be just ridiculous? That whoever read that first one, David, you're overstating the case a little bit. I mean, because the truth is sometimes we don't see God's commands this way, right? When we think about God's commands about sex, about pride, about forgiveness, about money, we don't see God's commands this way. But we should. So think about it. Who gave us these laws? Well, it's obvious from this passage. The glorious God whom David praises at the beginning. Why did he give us these laws? And this is what you have to grasp, I think, because he loves us. He loves us. He wants us to experience his best. He does not want us to settle for the garbage, the garbage that's all Satan in the world can offer us. He wants more for us. It's God's will or it's garbage. And we have to see it that way. God's laws also show us what God is like, right? They're a reflection of his character. And God wants to bless us by living in a world where we treat one another the way God wants us to treat each other. He wants us to experience his holiness and goodness in the relationships we have with one another. And we do in glimpses, but imagine a world like that. You know, when preparing God's people to enter the promised land, Moses, Moses told the Israelites, he said, this is what the nations are going to say when they see these laws that God has given you. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And Moses went on to write, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statues and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? He saw it. He understood it. What kind of person ignores the precious and the wise commandments given by a glorious God that benefit us in so many ways? Only a fool. The third essential response for us to have freedom and joy is to be ruthless with sin. This comes up in verses 12 through 14. We have to be ruthless with sin. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So after considering the inexhaustible glory of God in all of creation, and the perfection and the desirability of God's laws, the psalmist is asking three things of the Lord. He's asking to be declared innocent 
of hidden faults, for God's help to conquer willful sins, and that his words and thoughts with God's help would be pleasing to the Lord. What a great prayer. I would encourage you to make that your prayer. All three of these requests are really designed for one thing, to enhance David's intimacy with the Lord by fighting the one thing that keeps us from him, our sin. The sin that the Bible says so easily entangles us. In other words, without real effort, we will not break free from sin. We have to be ruthless. David first humbly acknowledges that as sinners, we're not even able to see all of our sin, right? Other people see it in us far more clearly than we do. So he asks God's forgiveness for these so-called hidden faults. One author describes these hidden faults in a way that I found particularly convicting. He said, it is not because they are too small to see, but because they are too characteristic to register. In other words, they're hidden from us not because they're inconsequential, but because they are so much a part of our speech and our thinking and our actions that we don't even notice them. Ouch. But even hidden sins can kill relationships and distance you from the Lord, so they must be dealt with ruthlessly. You have to go after them. And if you can't see them, trust me, somebody else sees them. Go to somebody that you respect, somebody who's walking with the Lord, and ask them. Second, the psalmist prays for God's help to prevent him from willful sins. Those sins we know in advance are wrong, but we choose to do them anyway. Shocking, isn't it? Even Christians are guilty of this. But when we give in to them, we increase their power over us. And David was frightened of that, and we should be too. You know, there are two temptations that we face when we are confronted by our sin. The first one is that we some way try to minimize it. It's not that bad, not that big a deal. Second thing we often do is we try to justify it, right? When confronted by our sin, we tend to minimize it or we're tempted to justify it. And I would just say to you, as I say to myself, do not underestimate your ability to justify and minimize your sin. You are probably very good at it. Just because it's not a big deal in your mind doesn't mean it doesn't offend God. All sin sent his son Jesus to the cross. And what's, I think, even worse than making your sin out to be less offensive than it really is, is justifying it. If someone hurts you, you may believe that you have the right to sin against them. I have heard that. I have heard that in my office. Well, they did this. And I'm sympathetic to that. But sometimes I want to say, so what? So what? Look at what they did to Jesus. Look at how he responded. Look at how he tells you and me to respond. You do not have the right to sin against them. We might think we do, but we do not. In contrast, David's desire, what he wanted most, is he wanted to be blameless and innocent of all transgression, it says. He wanted nothing to do with sin. He wanted to be completely rid of it. He knew what it was like to feel the stain and the shame of sin. And he knew what it was like to walk with the Lord in freedom and joy and in purity. And he knew how much greater that was. I would say for me, it's probably one of the greatest blessings and insights into my life as I've walked with the Lord more. To hate sin more and to love intimacy with God even more. 
Third, David wanted all of his words and thoughts to be pleasing to the Lord that he loves so deeply. And you know, that heartfelt request is really all you need to experience the freedom and the joy that the Lord wants you to have as a follower of Christ. This desire that everything that comes out of your mouth, everything that you do, would be pleasing to the Lord. David ends this psalm by calling the Lord his rock and his redeemer. And it's interesting, it's significant, because in a passage where he's talking about sin, he could have referred to God as his judge. But because of God's grace, ultimately preeminently revealed in our Savior Jesus, David can look to a holy God as a sinful man, as his protector and savior. Hallelujah. You know, the sad truth is that our spiritual appetites, what Jonathan Edwards called our religious affections, are at times, they are so watered down and so weak that they are powerless against the immediate satisfaction of food and sex and power and other things. And when that happens, we lose far more than we realize because we were created for so much more. But when our spiritual appetites are reinvigorated by a fresh understanding of the glory of God, his indescribable glory, when we are captivated by the beauty and the value of God's laws, and when we are ruthless in our fight against sin and temptation, we value intimacy over God, over the passing pleasures of sin. And then we experience the freedom and the joy that God intends for us. And when we do, we realize that any sacrifice, any effort to get there is trivial in comparison. I began by describing what freedom and joy, a lack of freedom and joy, might look like in a counseling situation. And I'd like to close by telling you what it looks like when freedom and joy show up. There was a husband and wife in my office, and they were describing some of the reasons why they were struggling. They were both under a great deal of stress from work and finances and parenting, and I'm sure many of you can relate. And the truth is that both of them had very good reasons to complain about each other, because under that stress, both of them had acted selfishly and unlovingly towards each other at times. But at one point in our time together, the wife began recounting some of the ways her husband's words had hurt her deeply. In fact, he had humiliated her. And to her credit, she was able to articulate it without any malice, but with great pain. To be honest, it was hard to hear. I felt so bad for her. And you know, remarkably, there are times when I've experienced something like that in my office, and the offending spouse just sits there and says nothing. But not this time. After his wife had finished speaking, the husband leaned over to his wife, he put his hand on her arm, and he gave her one of the most beautiful and heartfelt apologies I have ever heard. He was truly broken over his sin. The husband experienced freedom from his sin. He owned it. He didn't justify it. He didn't minimize it. He agreed with his wife and the Lord that his behavior was dark, ugly, selfish, proud, and gross. And he asked her to forgive him, and she did. And because of that, there was joy. That is what the Lord wants for you. It's what he wants for me. It's what he offers us because of Jesus, freedom and joy. 
May God help us not settle for slavery and shame. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have blessed us beyond what we can comprehend. The fact that we even know you, this God of indescribable glory and majesty and power, that you know us personally and you love us, and you offer us the gift of yourself, it is really beyond comprehension. But Father, we confess that far too often we are attracted to lesser things. We desire the garbage that the world offers us, that Satan offers us rather than the glory that you promise us. And so Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters. Would you help us? Help us to see you as you are. Help us to be amazed at your glory. Help us to love your laws and help us to be ruthless against sin. Father, we need you. This is what we were created for. May we walk in the freedom and the joy that you grant to us because of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.